Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God and His Word, is 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 to 24, though 11 to 24 were read. If you can and will, keep your Bibles there as we move into this passage together. Welcome again to Christ the King Anglican Church here at Crimson Tees. If you're visiting with us today or haven't been around much in the last few weeks, then you will find out that we've been only four short weeks in 1 John. And this morning on the fifth Sunday after Easter, we conclude our time in this book, coming only to the end of 1 John chapter 3. We are not going to move any further into the letter, but maybe someday we'll come back to it. I've enjoyed it. I trust the Lord's using something of First John in your life in these weeks. The theme of the text that we consider this morning is assurance. And you see it right there in verse 19, where we begin. Verse 19, by this, John writes, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. The goal at this point of John's letter is assurance. Or perhaps more accurately, reassurance. John wants his readers to know or to be reassured that they are of the truth. What does it mean to be of the truth? Well, it simply means they are of God. That they are children of God. That they know God. And that, therefore, they have eternal life. So, this is what John says. He's written his entire letter for near the end of it. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. So, 1 John 5, 13 says, I write these things to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants his readers to know they are of the truth. So may I ask you, is that an issue that takes up any space in your life? Do you spend any time thinking about this in your day-to-day life? Or not? Because here's my dilemma in approaching this sermon this morning. I can't figure out where to aim it. (laughs) Because I see at least two possible ways that this whole matter of assurance or reassurance could strike you. And they're granted, they're two opposites, and you may be somewhere in between. But let me sketch the polars, at least. Because on the one hand, I suppose the whole thing could strike you as no big deal. This isn't something you really think about. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. You say you believe in Jesus. You even prayed to receive Jesus. What have you got to worry about? You go to church regularly. Things seem fine, thank you. No need for reassurance. That would be one possibility on one end of the spectrum. Or maybe you're the opposite of that. 
you've been a Christian for a long time too, but you've just never felt okay. You think about assurance a lot because you see so many ways that you think you fall short and how could you ever be sure you're of the truth? So who am I talking to this morning? Does this question about assurance of eternal life, of being of the truth, does it take up any space for you? What kind of space does it take? And partly as I reflect on it, I think if you're a Christian, whether or not the issue of assurance or reassurance weighs very much in your experience has a lot to do with what you've been taught. How you've understood the Bible. Because this gets right to questions like, what's the gospel? What's the nature of faith? What defines the Christian life? What is this supposed to look like? And in my almost 10 years of ordained pastoral ministry, which isn't very much granted, but it's enough to get a sense. I was reflecting on this the other day, and I thought I can count on one hand the number of times people have actually asked me questions about this subject, which says to me it doesn't seem on the one hand like people are thinking a lot about this. But then I'm not so sure. Because, you see, John figured this would be taking up a lot of space, for his readers at least, at this point. Because what's he been saying in this letter? Well, he's been saying things like, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, chapter 1, verse 6. Or, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him, chapter 2. Verse 4. Or, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Chapter 2, verse 15. Or, now to the point of chapter 3, 1 John 3, verse 14. We know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And then there's where we ended last week in verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And it becomes pretty clear that John means all of that. So verse 19 begins with the words, By this. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. What's the this referring to in that verse? Now, often John uses this language to point ahead to something that he's about to say. But not this time. It's the universal conclusion of any commentator and scholar I read on this passage that this time John looks back. The this is what he said in verse 18. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John's saying, here's how we know we're of God. Here's how we reassure our hearts before him. We check to see if we love others. And not that we say we love others, but that we actually do things that manifest love for others, in deed and in truth, John says. And last week, if you were here, you know we spent basically all of the sermon working through why love like this is what 
walking in the light looks like in the Christian life. That this is the point, that it's always been the point of the life of faith. Why? Because God is love. And God has loved us, John says. And we abide in God. And he abides in us by his Spirit. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil, John writes. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Okay, so if you identified with the first group a few minutes ago, the group that more or less really just doesn't think about the issue of assurance because you figure you're doing just fine on the basis of whatever faith declaration you made in the past or something along those lines, if, if you're somewhere on that side of the spectrum, then for you, all that matters in this text is the first two words of verse 19. By this. Not by anything else. Just by this. Referring to verse 18. So if that's you, then it'd be good if you just meditate on that connection for the rest of the sermon and ignore everything else that I have to say. Those who are of the truth live out the truth through deeds that meet the needs of others. Recently, I've been reading uh, some from the New Living Translation. I don't know if you're familiar with it. In another life, I used to work at the company that produced the Living Bible and then eventually the New Living Translation. So I got to know it a bit in that context, and I've recently been reading it again. And I quite like the... NLT, the New Living Translation, on this verse, 1 John 3, verse 19. Here it is. It says, It is by our actions that we know we are living in the truth. It is by our actions that we know we are living in the truth, is how they translate it. That is the point of verse 19. Living rightly in relationship with others is the fruit of being right with God. Loving others is the way we know we love God. This is taught elsewhere in the Bible. Most famously, perhaps, James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, James says? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? And then note the paradigmatic example that James cites, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And you know, you've been around, that I think Paul teaches the same thing. See Galatians. Because I think this is what Jesus taught. I think this is what the Old Testament taught. I think the Bible's pretty consistent on this one. It is by our actions that we know we are living the truth. 1 John 3, verse 19. By this. But then now, I think I'm speaking to the second group that I set up a few minutes ago. The group for whom this whole question of assurance or reassurance 
this is a big deal to you because you really never had it. And why is that? Well, maybe partly it's because you get what John's saying in this letter and you take it seriously. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And this demand to walk in the light and to love as God loves, to do this in deed and in truth, you get it. But you know what's happening? Despite the fact that you do get it, you do love God, you do in fact love in deed and truth towards others, but your heart's always condemning you. You can't rest in verse 19. You find no rest in verse 19. Because it's not working for you like it should. You know you love God and others, but your heart won't relent. And you have this inner voice that says things like, you're not doing enough. You don't really love him or her, do you? You're just selfish. Where's your faith? Do any of you identify with that? Look at verse 20. Those of you who identify with, in some way, that second group. Because it's verse 20 that I most want you to get this morning. And, in fact, it's basically the whole rest of the sermon, sorry. John says, for, verse 20. And we're going to have to come back to that for word. That's tricky, actually. So we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute, but just read the rest of it. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, John says, and he knows everything. God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Now, how does that work? I mean, what does that mean, John? I had to spend time with that this week because that did not work for me at first. Because doesn't the fact that God knows everything just make it worse, John? I mean, doesn't that just drive me further into despair about my shortcomings? Come on. And you, some of you chuckle a bit because that's how you read it too. Because if I'm aware of the ways my love for others is falling short, isn't God just going to see how bad it really is? You see my initial problem. I'm looking at it from that angle. But listen, it's because I'm reading that statement negatively. John means it positively. This is meant to assure you so we have some work to do to figure out how that can be. So as I thought about verse 20 and tried to reflect on this, it seems to me that there are two ways in which our hearts can condemn us. Maybe there's others, but at least two main ways in which our hearts can condemn us. And I submit that in both cases, the fact that God is greater than our heart and knows everything is a good thing. And it works a little differently in each of the two cases. I think there's a way our heart can condemn us legitimately. 
for legitimate guilt. And then there's a way that our heart can condemn us illegitimately for illegitimate guilt. And I want to consider each one and, and talk about what this could mean. So, so first, I suggest there is a legitimate heart condemnation that draws out a real failure to love others as fully as we ought. And I use my language carefully there because John says in verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. I try very carefully not to use ought language unless it's there, and there it is in verse 16. So this would go like this. You're a Christian. You have love for your brothers and sisters. You find in your heart affection towards them. You find a desire to meet their need when they, when you have what they need and they don't. But sometimes you fail. And you fail sometimes to love in the way you know you ought to. In other words, you have sin in your life. You fall short. Your heart condemns you for that. That's good. It should. Your conscience is activated. And the way John's using the heart language here, I am making the exegetical decision, is very near what you and I would label as conscience. So I'm using these interchangeable at this point. As a Christian, I think you probably find you have a very active conscience. You should find that. Because you have a conscience that's been shaped by the priorities of Scripture. Your conscience testifies to you concerning your behavior. And Hebrews 9, verse 14, fascinating verse, says your conscience has been purified. Purified from dead works to serve the living God. So, if that's the case, then it's rightly pretty sensitive. So when you sin, it accuses you. And you're needing to be reassured. And I'm saying to you, I think that's a very normal, even a healthy thing. I'm pastorally way more concerned when someone just doesn't care about sin in their lives. I'm way more concerned in that situation than when I have someone whose conscience is condemning them legitimately. Your heart condemns you. What do you do when your conscience reacts that way? Legitimately, at this point. Identifying guilt in your life. John says God's greater than our heart, and he knows everything. What could that mean in this case? I think it means that God knows the forgiveness he's granted us in Jesus Christ. And the outworking that that has and will have in our lives. Romans 8 verse 1. Everybody knows Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then you have to hear the reason why there's no condemnation. For, Paul goes on, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So you sin, your heart condemns you, but God knows more. 
God knows that you're forgiven in Jesus. And we've seen how John's already made the foundational point that cleansing is available by the blood of Jesus. Verse 7 of chapter 1, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And John says he's writing that they may not sin, but then in chapter 2, verse 1, he says if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Dear friends, God is greater than your condemning heart. He knows everything. He knows that in Jesus we're forgiven. No condemnation. Because he knows that he's been at work in our lives. Because he knows that he's poured the Spirit into our lives. Look briefly, if you would, at the very last verse of our text this morning, in verse 24, 1 John 3, where John writes, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us. And here's a case where the language looks ahead, right? By this, here it comes. By the Spirit whom he has given us. Do you see that? The Spirit whom he has given us. There are times when your heart condemns you. And that's the right response. And what does God know? God knows your heart's been changed by the presence of his spirits while you're reacting this way. That down beneath the sin that you've committed, that your heart's condemning you for, is, the Lord knows, a changed inner man. A changed nature. He knows because he changed it. And you don't take sin lightly. And you confess it, but you can avoid this kind of morbid self-condemnation because God himself knows everything about you, including that he's given you his spirit to be at work in your life. And it's a process, folks. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your failings. He knows more about what's wrong with you than you do. And he knows he's going to keep working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. This is the bedrock of all pastoral ministry. What does Paul say? Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Here, here's how, here's the, this is how I think about pastoral ministry. Philippians 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And later in verse 9, just as significantly, what does Paul then do? And it is my prayer that your love, right? Love. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. To the glory and praise of God, because he started it. He knows he started it. And he knows he's bringing it to completion. God knows what he's up to. He's greater than your heart.
And so there's my attempt to explain how our heart may condemn us legitimately and what assurance it is to know that God is greater than that. But it seems to me there's also the possibility, if I may, that our hearts can condemn us illegitimately. And I don't know how to be sure all that John intended in this verse, but I think it can also mean this, and so I I want to talk about it. I think it can also mean that God knows when our hearts are oversensitive. Because there are times when our heart condemning us is, frankly, a matter of unrealistic expectations. Or of a perfectionistic attitude. Or maybe of feelings of being inadequate in the face of such great need that you could never meet. I mean, at what point should we not feel guilty about the unmet needs of others, right? It's a legitimate question. Hard to answer, but legitimate question. So maybe another way that God's greater than our hearts is that he knows that the inner voice of our own conscience isn't always a reliable indicator. Listen here to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 5. And the point here is not precisely what I'm saying that Paul's making, but it's similar enough that I think I can still get there. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, Paul said. I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, even concerning yourself. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose, watch this, he will disclose the purposes of the heart. Incredible message. And then, Paul says, each one will receive his commendation from God. Not condemnation, commendation. Now, You and I just wrestle with this because we think that can't be good. That can't be good. God's going to show up and bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. Yes, Paul says. Thanks be to God. The purpose of my heart may be right even as I can't ultimately perfectly fulfill everything that it would want to do. I think I'd put it this way, dear friends. God calls us to do what we can and leave the rest to him. And our heart may be condemning us, but all we do is our best to love others and then trust God. I don't even judge myself, Paul says. It is the Lord who judges me. And I know it's hard to hear that as a positive thing, but that's what Paul means. That God's judging will reveal the purposes of the heart. And remember, God's changed heart. Yes. Paul says, 
then each one will receive his commendation from God. So I really like how this commentator named I. Howard Marshall puts it concerning this verse, 1 John 3, verse 20. Quote, I. Howard Marshall says, John says that we can set our hearts at rest whenever they condemn us. For God understands us better than our own hearts know us. And in his omniscience, he knows that our often weak attempts to obey his command spring from a true allegiance to him. I find that very moving. It might not be perfect. It might not meet every need. The Lord knows everything. He knows what we've done. He knows what we've tried. He knows where we've been unable to act because the circumstance is just too overwhelming. He knows everything. And here's the point, that whatever the case may be, because God already knows everything we've done or that we've failed to do, we can confess to him both our legitimate guilt for failing to love others as fully as we ought to, and what may be illegitimate guilt. And the sum of the matter has to be the same. You have to trust God in the face of any lack of assurance that we are, in fact, of the truth. Which is now what finally brings me back, if this works, I'm not sure if it works, but I'm trying. Which brings me back to the four that starts verse 20. This is the hardest part. Can you see, or maybe see, that because verse 20 is true, that whether it be legitimate or illegitimate condemnation that our heart's engaged in, God's greater than our heart. God knows everything. That's true, Christian, so that then you can do exactly what verse 19 exhorts us to do. You can look at your life. Do you have a love for brothers and sisters that moves beyond word or talk to deed and truth? Have you seen it in your lives as a reflection of your love for God? If you're a Christian, you have. You have. And it's enough. You can rightly know you're of the truth. Even when you find your heart condemning you, legitimately or illegitimately, because God knows everything. He knows he's at work in your life. So reassure your heart before him, dear sister or brother. And as you do, then verses 21 to 24 will be your experience. And we're done, time's up, but just listen to what John says. Will be the case when you know you are of the truth and reassure your heart before him. John says you'll be bold in prayer and you'll continue to abide in him. Here it is. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. 
This is what John, this is where John wants them to get to. We have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this, John says, we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Which seems like a fitting way to conclude, anticipating as we do in these next two weeks, the ascended Lord Jesus Christ who pours out his Spirit on Pentecost. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.